0: We're going to start there in verse 9. We have covered the first eight verses. We're going to read 9 down through verse 25. Verse number 9. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that he himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed, From the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. It has to separate that fact because usually it occurs at the moment of salvation instead of separate like this. And so we'll cover what's taking place here. Then laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in a gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray you to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. And they, when they testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We ask your blessing upon the service today. Lord, I pray this time would not be in vain. Please, Lord, I pray for your mercy and your grace. I pray that you would control what I say and how I say it. Lord, help me to present your truth here from what we see in this passage, Lord. Please give the words and the wisdom to be able to apply it to our life. Lord, if there's anyone here who's never truly been converted, there's anyone here that is a, a false convert, Lord, we pray that even this morning, Lord, they too would repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we desperately need you, and I pray for your help that you would work and be glorified. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When I arrived to Alaska, it was 1995. I was, what, 25 years old, and, and I. And since we came from remote assignment uh, back then in the Air Force, I don't know how it works now, but the, the, the base housing was always just packed. And But because coming from remote, I was able to go right into base housing, and we the house we ended up getting actually isn't far from where the McDonald's and the Connollys had lived. It was just uh, right behind the shop, area there on base. And... Uh, we were in the second unit over in those little townhouse things. And we had the, the guy in the very end. He was actually the song leader uh, over at Victory Christian Center over here on Dowling. And then we had our unit. And then we had a, a, a neighbor right next to us, j- joined to us on the other side. And they were not in church. And talked with him. They had uh, two boys and a girlfriend. I remember right down the other side was a church member that was here. Um, he was uh, an active church member even song leader in our church. And they've said, and obviously I'm going to use him as an illustration right now, and there's always this saying that you never want to, never want to end up as a, an illustration in a pastor's sermon. Well, that's what happened to him. And it isn't because I certainly don't like the fellow at all. I would love to be able to sit down and talk with him and try to get him to change his mind on what's happened. But he certainly was on my mind as I was preparing this message. And so... And so we were neighbors. He was just two doors down from me in these townhouses. And again, song leader, he led the soul winning in our church, although that was also a little bit of a red flag because he had never once, even though he led that ministry, he had never once knocked on a door. And that was a red flag. I didn't think too much of it, of course, but because of his, I was his neighbor, I did begin to see things. Um... Sometimes hindsight is 2020, 20, but I did begin to see things. I remember one time I had to go outside during the summer and interrupt a shouting match between him and the neighbor between us, who's a lost man, not even in church. And he had a, this a camper that should have been put to bed in 1927 sitting out front, and it was just a nasty-looking camper. It really was nasty-looking. And the neighbor had complained. It had been there for a couple of weeks and said, You need to move that. And it turned into the shouting match, and I was outside, and, and I heard some inappropriate language come from from the, the neighbor went to church here. And I couldn't believe what I heard, and I yelled his name. And he just looked at me and stormed into his house. And uh, anyhow, that was, certainly was an indicator. Then one of the best indicators I have, I do remember this giving me great pause. It was on a Wednesday night during testimony time, or Sunday night during testimony time. And the person had given testimony to thanking God that an ATM machine had accidentally given him $50 more than what it should have gave him. And at first I laughed, but I thought, he's actually given a testimony that he just stole from the bank. And and there was no conviction on that. I mean, he actually believed it was a blessing of God. That was a huge red flag. And I oh I I meant to bring it up here I forgot to I have it sitting I got it out to bring it up here for an illustration I forgot it on my desk and you know we had gotten along As a matter of fact the day that he left the day his family PCS he was a military man he had I was a brand new assistant pastor when he left I think I only been assistant pastor about a month maybe two months when he left and that was in March April of '97. And he had presented me with, he'd he really give a nice testimony to the church with the new assistant pastor that was here, and, and he, had, he had presented me with those who, there's some of you who were present during this service. He'd actually give me a picture, it's in my office, of my very first day as assistant pastor on February 9th of, of, of 1997. What had happened that Sunday night service, I got mobbed, because I didn't know what I was doing. So what would happen was, whenever it was your birthday, we, we would sing happy birthday. It was a little kid's birthday. We sing happy birthday, and they would get a piece of candy. We kept the candy bin right underneath the pulpit, and then you would lean down, and they'd be able to pick out a piece of candy. Well, it was my first time performing this, and I failed miserably. Because for the special, for singing happy birthday to them, we write these little notes back then. We used to do, for those who remember this, that was the night all that got started, my very first day as assistant pastor. And, and so we had all the Sunday school kids come up and sing to this child, happy birthday. Well, when I did that was, when I took that candy when they finished and I set it down there, every single one of the Sunday school kids attacked that. And so he took a picture of that, uh, of all the kids all around me, and diving into the candy thing there, and he gave that to me the day that he left. Well, they pcs It was not long. And he ends up leaving his spouse. Um, but that just wasn't all that happened. His life went a complete 180. A, a complete a complete to where now there was no question to what had taken place. Uh, the direction he chose to go was a false convert. There was never any genuine conversion. Um, and that was evident not just when he left his spouse, but what the direction his life took. At that point. Basically directly opposite of anything of the word of God. And it was a false convert. There are, there, there's not a church that does not have false converts within its doors. Jesus Christ had one. You can think of Judas. Judas was so good at it. He looked apart so well. That when Christ told them directly. One of you isn't truly saved. One of you is going to betray me. They didn't know who it was. There wasn't one of them that said, is it Judas? I bet it's Judas. They didn't have a clue. But he was, in fact, a false convert, as Jesus directly says in John chapter 17. Well, as we come here to the book of Acts, we're introduced for the first time since, since you go back to the time of Pentecost, the first recording of a false convert. Of somebody who was never truly converted And we're going to take a look at this. We're going to see in our text the marks here that are given of a false convert. These certainly are not exhaustive of it, but we do see what's in place here. I put it down as three Ps we're going to see pride, perception, and profit. Now, let's remember what brought Philip here. When we got into chapter 8, excuse me, as we got into chapter 8, we had the death of Stephen, the very first martyr that led to a great persecution that it, that it hit. Right now, there's a leader of that movement, a man by the name of Saul, who has simply decided, I am ending Christianity. He goes on, on, on an all-out assault. People are being martyred. He's throwing men and women in prison. Wherever he's at, if he finds out you are a Christian, he's doing whatever he can to disrupt, to destroy. So what happens in at this point in time, there has been no evangelism really outside of the Jerusalem area, not even Judea. And so this persecution then leads to the spread of these probably close to 20,000 converts by this time in Acts chapter 8. So they have, they have to run away. So they spread, and Philip, who was one of the first deacons chosen to serve, and they chose some amazing men. Stephen was one of them. They were introduced to Philip here, and next Sunday we'll look more at Philip. So Philip, when he decides, all right, where am I going to run to? He decides, he, he thinks of evangelism. I love his heart. He says, I'm going to Samaria. That's a brave choice. Remember, the Samaritans... And, and the Jews had no dealings. They considered them half-breeds. When the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria, they had taken, of course, many of those out of the northern kingdom and brought them captive, but they still left a decent amount of the population. And then on purpose, as was their custom, the Assyrians brought in other Gentile lines, pagan lines, brought them into the northern kingdom of Israel, and 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 they and and they produced children they married with the Jews that remained they produced children those children became known as the Samaritans they formed their own religion they built their own temple and and if if you can think of the geography at the time of how Israel looked during the time of Christ you had Judea here in the south just above Judea was the province of Samaria and that was considered its own by the way its own Governing, it was still controlled by Rome, but separate from Israel. And then the north of that was Galilee. Then you had Decapolis over here. And and when when the Israel when they needed to travel from Galilee to Judea to Jerusalem or from Jerusalem to Galilee, the direct route was just to go right through Samaria. They wouldn't do it. They would go around. They want no dealings. So there were there were racial issues, there were religious issues that were there. And Philip here makes the choice: I'm going to Samaria. I'm going to preach there. When he gets there, revival begins to break out. Revival breaks out. There's great joy what's taking place. And it's incredible. However, look at the very first word of our text. In verse 12. But. It signifies a change from the great joy that they had been experiencing. There's something else that's happening. There's a man in place named Simon. And this now goes into great detail of the story of the first false convert since all this began in Acts chapter 1. We're going to look at again the pride, perception, and profit. The marks of a false convert. So first off, pride. Now, we're introduced here to this man, Simon. Verse 9, it says, But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery, "...and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that he himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of a long time he had bewitched them with his sorceries." So here we're introduced to this man named Simon. Now what's interesting is this man has much actually written about him in history. Many of the men considered church fathers wrote about him in the second century, men like Justin Martyr and others. This is what is said about him. One the of mo- The things that he is most well known for, this Simon right here of Acts chapter 8, he is considered the father of the false doctrine of Gnosticism. Now, if you remember, when we went through 1 John, I covered what Gnosticism was. During Paul's time, uh, the biggest doctrinal issue that was facing the churches was legalism. It was, it was false converts of Judaism purposely coming in, into the church and starting to teach. They added something to the cross, just like is so common today. They said, yes, yes, you need to place your faith in Christ, but that's not enough. You also need, and then they went into circumcision and the law. So, Paul was battling that at all times, the lie of those perverting the gospel and adding in legalism. However, when you get into the close of the first century, well into the second century, the biggest doctrinal issue they were battling is Gnosticism, and this man is considered the father of it. So, what is Gnosticism? It comes from a Greek word meaning in the know, in the know, to have this knowledge. It was a teaching that you could obtain secret knowledge. Um, you have an elevated knowledge above others that could even override Scripture. That's Gnosticism. It taught knowledge was superior to virtue. Um they believed the Gnostics were the only one, there was this, this group that had the access to these divine secrets from God. They were getting in basically secret communication from God. They looked at themselves, as Simon did also, as we, is, is put in other writings. They believed they were basically an elevated being, if you will. That they were uh, ascribed by God a, 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 a more important status, somewhere between man and God. By the way, that's the same teaching of Mormonism about Christ and Satan. Just an elevated being, but not God himself. You can see that ties into Gnosticism. They taught God cannot be the only creator because evil was present. Again, keep in mind, these are people without wisdom, even though they think they have wisdom. So some of their conclusions were outrageous. Some of the Gnostics taught that all matter was in fact evil, so they denied the humanity of Jesus Christ. They did not believe that he, actually had, he was actually human flesh, which certainly isn't true. That doctrine is, is common. It's called um, docetism, is the name of that. Some Gnostics taught that that all that really mattered was this higher knowledge, this higher thoughts. And really how you lived in the body did not matter. And so many would give themselves, not all, but many would give themselves just over to sensual pleasure. That's what, that's what John was dealing with in, when he wrote 1 John. That aspect of Gnosticism that had come in. And, and, and he was just like here, just like we see here. He was letting them know, these people aren't saved, here's why. And he goes through who's converted and who isn't throughout those five chapters. He's very black and white. <clears throat> again, so this, this, this doctrine was, again, they had the secret knowledge. It's not unlike what you see in, in the, the, the Masonic movement of our day, masonry. Secret knowledge. There's other things said about Simon in history. Some of these are probably spurious uh, um, and not true, but nonetheless, they're still recorded in different writings. That We know that he became an enemy of Christianity. There's no question about that. And there is, there is writings of a dispute he had again with Peter in Rome. That him and Peter, um, during this dispute, that Simon to show his power, the, the man was going to see he had genuine satanic power. And in the dispute, it said that he elevated, he, he levitated. He raised himself really up there. And it's kind of humorous to read it because it said Peter just prayed and he came crashing down and got hurt and almost died <laughs> when that happened. His death is interesting. His death is entering. He died when he did not intend to die. He decided he could mimic the resurrection. He had himself buried. He never rose from the dead. So, that's a little bit about this man in history, Simon. So let's look when we're introduced to him here, because he does give us some marks of a false convert. And the first thing the Bible points out to us is this man had extreme pride. I mean, he let the people know he's some great one. Pride is strong in his life. The people even said he had the great power of God. That's just feeding his ego. I mean, he's hearing that. He's, he has a large following in Samaria. They think this man is it. He has bewitched them through his sorceries. I mean, the Samaritans were known for their superstitions. They were prying for a man like this. And so he comes in, he's the magician of his days, he has this real satanic power, he has the ability to deceive. The Bible says the people were bewitched through his power. They were deceived, believing he's some great man. What's worse though is that he himself, as it points out, thought he was a great man. He is full of pride. And you must understand that in order to be genuinely converted, humility will be present. There is no conversion without it. You must see yourself as the wretched sinner you are. There has to be the conviction of sin, the reality of how wicked you are. There is no coming to God in your pride. God, now you get me. That's not how this works. You must see yourself as a sinner in need of grace. This was not present. Pride had blinded this man to who he really was. Thinking more highly of himself. Pride was his biggest barrier between him and genuine salvation. If conversion is going to occur, he has to repent of pride. Pride blinds many. I'm going to read what one commentary, so I'm going to quote him directly. His words are much better than mine. <clears throat> he said this, In Herod, it wore the mask of... Talking about pride... In Herod, it wore the mask of conscience and beheaded John the Baptist. In the Jews, it wore the mask of tender regard for the honor of God and it killed the Son of God. In the Pharisees, it wore the mask of purity of life, when in reality they were vile and filthy inside. Pride is the deadly sin that cost Nebuchadnezzar his reason. It cost Hezekiah his kingdom. It cost Peter almost his life. It cost man Eden. It doomed Sodom. It sprang up in angel's heart. It cost them heaven. It cost Haman his life. It gave Uzziah leprosy. Pride damns men. Very true. Very true. Psalm chapter 10 and verse 4. Look over there at that, this verse. Psalm chapter 10 and verse 4. <clears throat> This verse has been underlined and marked in my Bible for years. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. Through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. So as we're going to see here, based on the truth of that verse, Simon is not actually seeking God, and it's going to show us what he's actually seeking. Pride. Is this barrier between him and God? We think of verses like in Roman, or excuse me, in Proverbs chapter six, "When the Lord gives seven things that He hates, what's the top of the list? Pride. Pride. I mean, you, you can think of, uh, uh, even, even in First John when it talks about what the devil uses to, to tempt to deceive the pride of life, the pride of life pride will greatly hinder you. When you begin to see yourself as some great one, you will fail to see how miserable you are. It is then, it's in that place you begin to see your need of God. Your need of a dependence upon Him, of walking by faith. Pride can take over your life, can blind you. It blinds you to your own faults, just like Simon here. It's always somebody else's fault. It's one of the reasons this man was a false convert. His pride stopped him from genuine conversion. You never see him in the text with humility. You never see him like the publican coming before uh, in Luke 18 saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. So next, we see his perception of salvation. Verse 12 and 13. We see his pride in the first couple of verses. And then 12 and 13, we see how he viewed salvation. It says, but notice it gives a distinction here between two groups. Between a group and Simon. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God uh, um, and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. But look who's separate from this group. Simon, then Simon himself believed also, and he was baptized and he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Remember, There's also a verse in the Bible. The devil's believed and trembled. It's not maybe that he didn't believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead. But we're seeing here is motivation. What led to his profession of faith? What led to this? Him choosing to follow. That's the problem. We see his perception of salvation is wrong. He didn't get it. He didn't understand it. His pride was blinding. He wasn't about to humble himself before God. And he didn't understand it. The Bible makes the distinction here between the true converts who the Bible says they believed as the result of what? The preaching. When they heard the preaching, they believed. The Bible even talks about that in other places. Uh, um, but God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them which believe. But it wasn't the preaching was not what led to his conversion, was it? It was the miracles. It, it wasn't Philip's message it was philip's power it wasn't his message it was the miracles that's what's grabbing him that's what he wants his understanding of salvation his perception is wrong he believes because of the miracles what he wondered at was not the truth and the wonders of salvation but of the power that philip possessed he even sees no doubt philip as the competitor There's great joy. There's people hearing the message. They're flocking to hear this man, Philip, preach. He's losing his following. He knows the power he's seen is not the cheap stuff that he has. This is different. But why was he there? Why was he following? The Bible tells us. He was attracted to the miraculous Power. By the way, we see a lesson here. We, we see a lesson that if you win people with sensationalism, that's what you have to do to keep them. If you win them with loaves, that's how you have to keep them. Do you understand that that truth, which many of you know her in leadership, i sat down and told you, that's what directs a lot of my decisions when it comes to things like our bus ministry and our outreach. He is pulled in by the miracles. His belief was motivated by a selfish, self centered reason that would never be considered genuine. Christ came across. Look at John chapter 2. Go to the Gospel of John chapter 2. Let's look at uh, verse 23 here. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast days, many believed in his name when they saw what? The miracles which he did. But get this, get where 24 goes. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. He knew all men. Simon is simply following because of the miracles, the power. What he's wondering at is the power that's involved, not the message of the gospel itself. He was willing to make use, basically, of Christianity to advance his own power. He thought, oh, I see how I can use this. I'm believing. Multitudes try and use God the same way today. Again, he follows, the Bible tells us, not because he loves God, not because of a desire for truth, not because he wanted to go closer to the Creator, but because of the miracles which he was witnessing. That's what's driving him. His perception of salvation is not right. It's when we come humbly before God, when we see our own wickedness when we place our faith in Christ that He saves. Not when we're coming before God because we can see some personal advantage to this. That's what Judas thought, by the way. It was. That's why Judas followed Christ. He said, well, I'm getting in on this. I'm getting in on this. He was a false convert. Many people come to Christ for a, for not out of, not out of the, simply the power and message of the gospel itself, recognizing their own need to be saved and what Christ did, but they see something else about it. And then thirdly, we see profit. We see a pride. There's nothing that indicates he repented of his pride, which would lead then to a false conversion. We see he's motivated, not by the message itself, but by the miracles. That could lead to a false conversion, and it does. As, as, we're, as Peter's going to tell him, Point blank, you're not saved. And then we see prophet. Let's look at 14 through 25. Now, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. Again, it has to explain this because that's not the norm. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. When Simon saw that through the laying on the apostle's hand the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. All right, let me stop there. I'll come back to those, those verses in just a second. But I, needed to, I need to discuss what's taking place at the beginning of this. Uh, first, of the Samaritans receiving the Holy Ghost, so we know what's happening. So, the persecution is taking place, the, the, the believers are spreading and scattering uh, throughout the known world of that time. Philip heads up to Samaria, he begins preaching, well, word travels back to Jerusalem that there's a revival taking place in Samaria. I assure you, they were taken back by that, if not shocked. They heard the words of Christ, yes, but you have to understand there is still a very limited understanding on their part as to how this is going to work in relation to the gospel and those who are not Jewish. And so they hear revival taking place, and so they said, we need to check this out. Let's see if this is real. And so they send, of course, Peter and John. Peter and John, and we see from the time of Christ on, these were close companions in ministry throughout. So Peter and John head up there, and guess what? It's real. And to them, of course, they would have been happy, but what's beginning to unfold, there's an understanding of just what the gospel actually does. Where there's neither Jew nor Greek now, but one in Christ. That now the responsibility is actually going to the churches for the propagating of the message and not the nation of Israel. That this is unifying. This is something different. So they go up there, they see that, they are, that there's genuine conversion that is taking place. And so they lay their hands on them, they pray, and the Lord now allows the Holy Spirit to come and indwell them. And He did so in such a way that He gave a physical manifestation of it. You say, well, what would that have been? I have no doubt that would have been, that would have been tongues. That, that makes sense, what we see in Acts chapter 2, and Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19. When it was required... And and that was the sign given by God, to say, "Yep, they got it. It's true. They would need that here." Again, keep in mind they're still not understand- They haven't even thought about reaching out. It's so bad. Even with this event, when we get into Acts chapter ten, we're almost there. They still haven't preached to a Gentile yet, because they don't know if they should. It's so ingrained to them of the superiority of the nation of Israel at the time, as God's chosen people, they're not even understanding Christ's command over and over. Preach the gospel to every creature. And and the Lord has grace and compassion. He understands what they grew up believing. To the point in Acts chapter 10, the Lord has to come to Peter in a dream. And tell him, you're going to head to this man's house, Cornelius. Go and preach to him. And Peter does, and of course Cornelius and his family are there waiting. They get converted. And Peter's instead going, it's true. It's for them too. And so to authenticate that, the book of Acts is a historical book. It's not, it's, it, I mean, there's, there's, there's certain things that are doctrinal in here that we can see. But it's, the purpose of it is recording the history, really, of, of the first several decades of the church. It's also a transitional time from a pseudo-Judaism into Christianity. And during that transitional time, there were other things in place. Like apostles. They don't exist today. They were foundational. There's not a man, there's not a man alive that meets the requirement of being an apostle. The Bible lays those requirements out. And one of those is, you have had to have met Jesus Christ. Personally. Personally. So you had apostles, which the Bible says were foundational. And so here, it was delayed. Like right now, if this morning, if there's a person here or several that put their faith in, if repent and put their faith in Christ, they'll receive God's Holy Spirit instantly. It will indwell them and seal them unto the day of redemption. The Bible teaches that. But here it was delayed. Even then, at the converse they were received the 20,000, they were being indwelled and sealed immediately. So that's why it separates you here that hadn't happened yet. That was so the apostles could see it. That was so they would know, it's true. It's true. And that was the sign gift that the Lord has given. And so that's what we see taking place here, and so they know it's, so that they simply know that it is, in fact, true. It confirms it. So now, Simon sees this. It shows us what else was in his life that led him to being a false convert. Really, what this demonstrates to us is there was no change. No change in his life. The Bible says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, but all things are become new. Doesn't mean you're perfect. You're still going to struggle with sin, but that's just it. Now it's a struggle. Do you understand that? Now it's a struggle. Now it's. Uh, You have the fight within, because God's Spirit indwells you. He doesn't have that problem. There is no change. There is no change. So let's read what he does here. Verse number 18. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Peter recognize this immediately. Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right with God. You are not saved. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, and said, pray you to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken come upon me. So now we have this event that takes place. He sees what happens and he begins to covet that power. He wants it. He's following Peter, Comes he's like, and he sees, he sees these people speaking in another language just like that. Oh, I want that. I've never done anything like this. I want it. I want it. I want that power of God in my life. And in his world, what he was used to is he could buy anything with money. Isn't that true today? So many areas. How quickly people are willing to compromise for money. Sad. He was willing to compromise for money. He's not unlike Judas here. He too thought money was the key. He never understood His covetousness takes over. The need for profit of his own name. He wanted this power. Matter of fact, have you ever heard the word uh, simony? It's taken actually from this man in the English language. It's derived from this account in Acts chapter 8. In Baptist circles, we don't deal with it too much, but if you grew up Catholic, you know that word. That was the buying of an ecclesiastical office, the church office. It was paying for indulgences. It was wicked and it was vile. And it's taken from this man's name. His greed blinds him. There is no change in his life. He still wanted power. He was about his name, about his fame, about his following. There is no change. This is the same man before he believed, after he believed. There's no change. He is still filled with sin, as Peter says. He's not about God's glory. He's about his own glory. He tells him directly, your heart is not right with God. Telling him, you're not saved. Again, he actually thought he could purchase this with money. It shows such a lack of understanding. It's incredible. Peter, how much money will it take? I need this. His covetousness took over. He never recognized his true sinful condition. He was following to get power. I, I, I think often how people follow God for the exact same way. I, I can think when I was beginning to serve Christ and, and, and going back to 17, 18 and, and the, the getting serious about my faith. And there was this huge push with the, the, the type of, uh, of, and generally saved people love God. Don't, I don't want to misrepresent this too much. But nonetheless, there was something very carnal and wicked that was used to get you to serve God. And that was power. God's power on your life. Of you being willing to do what it took to get God's power on your life. (laughs) Using something carnal. Because that's not making that about God. That's making it about you. Oh, could I have that power? Could I possess that? Think of what I could do. That was wicked and it was vile. It was feeding men's pride. It was making it more about their name than God's name. Again, what Simon quickly found out was there are many of those who simply don't actually live for profit or live for money. He learned here very quickly, there's things you cannot buy with money. Money can buy you a house, but it will never buy you a home. Money can buy you a library, but it will not buy you wisdom. Money can buy you entertainment, but it will never buy you joy. Money might be able to buy you medicine, but it cannot buy you health. Money might buy you status, but it will never buy you character. Simon is learning. Uh, There's things money cannot buy. Peter then in verse 22 calls into true repentance. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. Peter saw how wicked his heart truly was. That he was never genuinely converted. That it was vile and it was wicked. He's telling me you're in bondage to your sin. Sin is this bitter poison that's in you right now and you're not even seeing it. He says, I'm telling you, that's what's in your heart. And he tells him, says, You need to pray that you need to come to God like this in repentance. You know what he still does if you read? He still refuses. He doesn't pray. He doesn't come humbly before God. There's some, which I don't know that I agree with this, because I tried to read it in that light, and I just didn't get that. But there are some good men who've written about this who say that his response is pure sarcasm. Now, I can't quite agree with that. When I read that, I couldn't quite see it. But there are some good people that believe his response is simply sarcasm back to Peter. But he doesn't pray nonetheless. He says, no, you pray for me. Pray none of these things come upon me. He's still not willing to fall on his face before Almighty God. Say, Lord, please be merciful to me, a sinner. And the only thing he's worried about, for the most part, is, don't, don't go wrong, that can be an element of, of salvation. It's still just the consequences. In other words, like many times is the case, he's simply sorry he got caught. He's simply sorry he was exposed right now is what it's about. But what we still see taking place here is he himself not placing his faith in Christ. And then we know from world history where it goes from there. He becomes an enemy of the Christian faith. The father of secret knowledge, deceiving multitudes. So we see the first thing the Bible tells us was his pride made salvation impossible. That's such a great barrier between men and God. Pride. His perception or the reason why he came to Christ was all wrong. The miracles, the loaves, Just like Christ in John 2. They believed because of miracles. They wanted to show. And then, when you see his need for profit, profit and gain of his own name and however it might take its form. It demonstrated this man had no change. His heart was the same before as it was after. If he can go right to the Apostle Peter, I want this. How much will it cost me? There is no change. There was no change. He was a false convert. So the question is, are you? Are you? You say, Well, I've I prayed a prayer. A prayer doesn't save you. No, I, I did too the moment I got saved. But it wasn't the prayer that saved me, it's faith in Christ. So examine your own heart, as the Bible tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians. Examine yourself to see whether you'd be in the faith. To see if you heard the gospel, recognized your need of Christ, and humbly came before Him Lord, I am a sinner. I need you. I'm condemned. I believed you've died for me. Listen, because one day you will stand before God. The Bible says this. you're going to die and stand before God. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed a man once to die, but after this the judgment. So you're going to die and God Almighty is going to judge you. And the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And when he judges you, you, know what it tells us in Romans chapter 2? He's going to use his law and he's going to judge your life. He's not going to use your neighbor. He's not going to use somebody you felt you were better than. He's going to use his law. And I got news for you. You've broken his law. Just like I have. You're guilty. If God judges you, I am telling you, you're going to be found guilty. You have broken his law. He's not going to say to you, you know what? You and I had our own thing worked out. You're a pretty good guy. And remember that car wreck I saved you from? Yeah, it's all right. That's not how this is going to work. You're deceived. God Almighty, the creator of the universe, is going to judge you. And he makes it point blank clear. I will use my law and I will judge your life. And you will be found guilty. This is the scary part. According to Revelation 20 and 21, 100% of those guilty are cast into a lake of fire. That's a real place. I know we like to deny it today in our theology because it's, it's just so horrible to think about. And we like to think about good things like Flowers. It's a very real place. I don't know why I said flowers again. I just can't mind. It's a real place. hundred percent of those who are found guilty are cast in the fire. Guess what needs to happen for you to escape that judgment? Something has to happen where you look perfect. Think about that. It's the only way you're getting out of this. Something has to happen where you look perfect. Now, what's going to enable that to take place? God in heaven, our creator, who is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Because you know what he did? To make you look perfect? He became a man. The Bible refers to him as the second Adam. God Almighty puts on this flesh as a man. He walked on this earth 30-some years. And guess, guess what's amazing about it? He never sinned. He was perfect. The only one, as the man, who could stand there at Judgment Day, and the Father can say, you're perfect, I find no sin, I find no fault. Just like was declared over and over at his trial. I find no fault. But when he went to the cross, listen to this verse. One of the greatest verses in the Word of God. It teaches us what happened on the cross. It says, for he hath made him to be sin for us. Who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So when I say that Christ died for you, which He did, what I'm saying is this, is that Jesus Christ took all of your sin, the one who knew no sin became sin, it said. He takes all of your filthiness, all of your sin upon Himself. And the Father judged Him in your place. He judged Him. But get this, Hell didn't hold him. After three days and three nights, he defeated death and rose again from the dead. If God judges you, you're not God. You're not coming out of hell. You are there. Forever. Now, so he takes your sin, but that's not all that verse says. It gets even better. It says that he gives you his perfect righteousness. So he takes your sin... And he gives you his righteousness. me use this illustration. Let's say this is judgment day. Your name's on here. God opens up the book, has your name on it. That's going to happen. And on their list, it is every time you've broken God's law. There it is. There's not going to be, there's not going to be a defense. There's, nothing, there's, not, there's no defense to this. It's the almighty God who's all-knowing, who knows every part of your heart. He's just going to show you, this is why you're guilty. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. That's what's going to happen. So here's, here's your name. Here's all the charges against you. Now over here. This is Jesus Christ up top here. Underneath his name is nothing but righteousness and perfection. That's it. Not one sin. So we have your name and your sin. Christ's name and his righteousness. When I say that Christ died for you, what you can do is to switch those names. You can take, you can take your name Place it over here and take Christ's name and place it over here. Look what happens when you do that. Underneath Christ's name is all of your sin, and He was judged for you at Calvary. Over here now is your name, and guess what? It looks as if you are perfect. That's why there's salvation. There's not salvation in any other. This is called the doctrine of justification. It's what he did to save you. And if you'll come to him in repentance and faith, he'll save you right there. June 30th of 1982 is when the lights went on and I got it and I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, if you haven't done that in truth, do it this morning with heads bowed and eyes closed.